listening to the Spirit of God, what He's saying to you and saying to me, because chances are whatever is happening there is going to be equal or more important than anything I share up here. But it's true, we all seek to get out of the way to listen to His voice this morning. My name's Mark, and I'll cover the next couple of weeks here as we talk about the one another's. Um, got a little insert in your bulletin you can follow along. It's about you know, meeting Jesus, what it means to meet his family and to grow uh, together in the unity and love of Jesus Christ. Last week, Don did a sort of an overview of the one another's, you know, relationships one with another, and, and sort of two themes, unity and love. Unity and love mark the body of Christ. And he shared sort of from the gospel, sort of how this went down with the disciples, that Jesus met each disciple individually, called them individually, Levi and Peter, James and John. And then once he had met them and they had chosen to follow him, he then introduced them to each other. Levi, this is Peter. Men of very different walks of life. And then we know the rest of the story. We read the Gospels and we see their journey and their struggle together and their life together. And until they're in the book of Acts, right? When they're all together praying as God had taught them to pray and to wait. And they're clothed with power from the Holy Spirit. And the next thing you know, they rock the world. Right? They changed the world. That's the progression. And, and as it went with the disciples, so it goes with us. All right? Baseline Community Church. What Jesus does with each of us, who have met him, is he first isolates us. We meet him one-on-one, face-to-face. Me and Jesus. You and Jesus. And we come to faith in him, to ask for his forgiveness. And then he reintroduces us to each other. The body of Christ, as one writer puts it, when Jesus comes into your heart, guess what? He brings his whole family with him, (laughs) right? People with whom we are now, right? We're all lovingly stuck together. I love that line. And so we learn to love and learn to live by expressing these one another's. Why? Not just because it's the right thing to do, but ultimately for his glory. In a world that's so divisive and divided and so diverse, right? For his glory, people look at the church and say, you know what, if that group of people from all those walks of life, before and after, can learn how to get along, can learn how to be transformed and to express their service with joy and community and depth and commitment, then there really must be something to who this Jesus is, this Jesus they worship. So ultimately, the body of Christ is for his glory, and that's what the one and others are all about. As Don preached last week, I was thinking about this verse in 1 Peter, which is an area I've rested in, where in 1 Peter it talks about all of us as living stones. Each of you, me, you, we're living stones built on a foundation of the chief cornerstone that is Christ, and we are built into a spiritual house. So it's not about the house. It's not about the stones. It's about the spirit that lives in the house. And so we're being built together to listen for and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. So as we look at these passages this morning and understand what it means to pray for one another, to intercede, to confess and release healing and grace into the community, would you pray with me and the Apostle Paul? Let's pray together. Lord, we just pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with power through your Holy Spirit in our inner being, so that you, O Christ, would dwell in our hearts through the faith that we have. 
Lord, that we pray that being rooted and established in your love, we would have power together with all the saints, the communion of saints, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is your love, O Christ, and to know this love that surpasses any of our knowledge or understanding, that we would be filled, filled this morning, Lord, with the full measure of who you are. pray this in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this week we'll look at prayer and intercession and confession and healing. Next week we'll come back and look at what does it mean to bear with one another and forgive one another. So they kind of tie together and um, simply stated this morning's verse, very simple, I'll put it up on the screen here, it says this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. There's an exhortation, something that God wants us to do. And then an observation. The prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. So this morning, it's about prayer, it's about people, and it's about grace. Now, we're coming out of a season, so to speak, of studying the Lord's Prayer, and it's very easy to say, hey, well, we just completed a study of prayer. Well, is that how it works? Did we complete our study of prayer when we looked at the Lord's Prayer? Answer? No, if if you're like me, no. It rocked my world. And it exposes the importance of, of going forward and deepening my prayer life. I Literally, it's sort of, it's, I've been taken down by it. That actually is a, a, a line from Paul's letter to the Philippians where he talks about pressing on, straining towards what is ahead, and forgetting what lies behind. And then he says this, I press on to take hold of that which has taken hold of me. It's a wrestling term. And when we really rest in what it means, the power and the privilege and the presence of prayer, it takes us down, it spins us out. But God can really teach us and instruct us. So I'd hope that you permit me a couple reflections just about prayer, and then we'll look at what it means to pray, right? Righteous prayers, to pray in that standing, and then we'll look at this exhortation. What does it mean to pray for one another and confess? A couple observations. First, basically, in studying prayer, I take great comfort and conviction in knowing that no one struggles alone in this. If we struggle with it, we are in fact in good company, right? If you struggle with understanding how it works, if you struggle with feeling awkward in the way you pray, finding time to pray, feeling so down on yourself because you committed to pray for someone on your list and then you forgot to do it until the 28th of the month and then you catch up on everybody, right, in that early morning time. If we struggle... Jesus meets us where we are at, just as he did with the disciples as they followed him, and then still asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. We don't get it. And Jesus is patient with them, as he was patient with them, as he is patient with us. So if we struggle with this, we're in good company because ultimately, prayer is not an activity. Prayer is always about our relationship with him. More important than the things we pray for is the God we pray for. Two, And as C.S. Lewis put it, while answered prayer is wonderful, the answerer is always better. And so we pray to cultivate that relationship with Jesus Christ. So number one, if we struggle, we're in good company. Number two, it's not an activity. It's always about cultivating that relationship. We are not called to have a prayer life. We're called to lead a praying life. That's the call that Jesus gives us here. Number three is that prayer is always, then, the right thing to do. Prayer is always the right thing to do. I I picked one of these up in the foyer. How many of you have seen these before? Seen people wear these? Need prayer, right? 
people walk around in our, our prayer team here? Well, let me ask you, need prayer, is that a question or a statement? <laughs> right answer. Need prayer for all of us is always where we're at. We always are in need of prayer. We can't kid ourselves. And that's a question. In the body of Christ, he asks us to be watchful and mindful of who else needs prayer. So it's always the right thing to do. In Ephesians 6, it says this, and pray, get this, in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, always be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Five alls in all. Get the message. We're always to be about being mindful and watchful for others and praying. Number four is we don't start praying when we pray. This has been a powerful insight for me. I hope it is for you. We always join the praying. Every prayer you pray is always corporate, even if you pray by yourself, in two ways. Number one, when we pray, okay, we are always an answer to Jesus praying for us. Question, what is Jesus doing right now? In John 17, he speaks of all of us when he says, I pray for all of those who will believe upon their message as he prays with the disciples. Well, that wasn't just a historic moment. He is always, you are always on his mind and his heart. He is always beckoning you, drawing you, to, seeking for you to draw you into his presence. He is always praying for you, and your prayer is always an answer to his. He is always the hearer of our prayers and the inspirer of our prayers. He's not like, you know, the dad in the lounge chair who's fallen asleep, right? When we show up and say, hey, you know, Jesus or God, are you out there? Oh, yeah, oh, it's you again. What was your name? We're not waking God up, right? It doesn't work that way. He is always there beckoning us to step into his presence, as is his family, the communion of saints. In Hebrews 12, it talks about this. It says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Right now, the communion of saints is praying for you. The Apostle Paul, that prayer isn't just a historic prayer. He and the saints pray that over us now. The entire community of saints in heaven, if I read my scripture correctly, is, is praying for us, pulling for us. The Apostle Paul, St. Augustine, Billy Graham, Diana Speakman, John Wooden, and my mom. Who's on your team? Who's gone before and praying for you? So we never start praying. We always join the praying, and that should give us great encouragement. And last but not least, the last reflection before we move into our passage in a little bit more detail is we're called to start and get better. He wants us to grow up, or I should say grow more deeply in our praying. Now, I was thinking about this. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine on the phone, and he was asking what I was preaching on, and we talked about prayer, and so he, he posed this question. He said, is prayer easy? Or is prayer hard? What do you think? Is it easy? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. Awkward question. <laughs> well, what's, what's easy about it is God invites us to have a conversation. No prerequisites. And we can do that. But he also wants us to start and grow more deeply in our prayers. It's sort of like in a marriage or a relationship. Linda and I were kicking this around a little bit. All right, It's sort of the difference between talking and communicating. I mean, 
I can talk. So can you. We can all fill the space with words, right? That's easy. And sometimes prayer is that way, right? Sometimes it's just as basic as Anne Lamott says, your prayer in the morning is, Lord, help. <laughs> your prayer in the evening is, Lord, thank you. Sometimes it's just that simple and primitive. Or on your more cynical days, it might be, Lord, whatever. By the night, rolls around, oh, oh well, right? So in part, it's easy. But to really grow in our prayer, to really communicate, right, takes effort, doesn't it? It takes listening. It takes engagement. And so while God invites us into his presence to have a conversation with him, he also beckons us to communicate with him, to hear what is on his heart, so that we move from talking and sharing our thoughts and needs to communicating and ultimately to communing with him. Remember, it's not an activity. It's a relationship. It's a praying life, a mindfulness, a heartfulness around praying. That's what he desires to cultivate for us. My dad will turn 100 next April. All right? His best friend lived to be 104. They fished together for just shy of 80 years. Think about that. And he would describe how they would grab their fishing poles and go down to the, you know, they'd surf fishing. I'm not sure if you've ever seen people doing this, but they'd go down and they would literally sit for the entire day and say not one word to each other. Because they knew each other so well from so many years, they would in essence know what the other was thinking. And one would say something like, you know, I was just thinking about, the other one would say, you know, I was just thinking about the same thing. Do you know people like that? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens from a communication and communion across time. That's what God desires for us to experience in Him. Communion with Him in that relationship. And it's His delight. The Lord delights in those who fear Him, says Psalm 147. And then I love this line from my favorite psalm, Psalm 25. The Lord confides in those who fear Him. He makes His covenant known to them. Just think about that. When we wait and commune, he confides in us. Is that not a beautiful picture of what prayer is all about? Well, so we pray. And then we move to this observation. The prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. Now, that's both an observation and a promise. What does it mean to be righteous in our praying? What does that mean? I was convicted about this this week. Always convicted of the importance of slowing down. How often, just after we pray, do we kind of throw that tagline in? You know, in Jesus' name. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're called to do that. What does it mean? Just rest with what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. And it means two things. One, it means that the only standing we have before him is not based on our righteousness, but his. We stand in the place of grace before his throne, not because of anything we've done, but because of what's been done for us. What's that line on Christ the solid rock I stand right? Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless. I stand before the throne. And he encourages us in that standing to approach that throne, as it says in Hebrews, with freedom and confidence. But our standing is in his righteousness. But the second part of this, what does it mean to pray in his name? To pray a righteous prayer means that I don't become, as Kyle said, preoccupied with my own needs. But if I'm really serious about that, I want to know what's on his prayer list. I want to pray righteous prayers. I don't know necessarily what that is apart from what's in God's word and what the Holy Spirit lays on my heart, but he does. 
So to pray righteous prayers means that I have that standing and that I invite him to tell me what is on his heart, his plans, his purposes. That's what should inform our prayers. And he promises that if we do that, our prayers will be powerful and effective because they're aligned with him and the work he desires to do. It's not a tool for me to ask God what I want, but more importantly, it is um, a, a, a way that God describes for me what he wants to do in me and through me for the sake of others. And so with that, we look at this exhortation. What does it mean to pray for one another? The word sort of here that we'll look at is what does it mean to intercede? Well, a couple things. First of all, when we pray for others, remember, we never start praying. We join the praying. What is Jesus doing right now? Well, in addition to inviting you into his presence, according to Romans 8, he is at the right hand of God. Christ who died more than that was raised to life at the right hand is interceding for us now. So when we pray for someone else, we are joining him as the intercessor. Lord, we join what you are up to in this person's life. Draw them to you. We bring these specific requests to you on their behalf and support. And as we do, when we do that, we are praying for an outpouring of heaven's resources into that person's life. And so we're called to pray for one another. Now, I said at the beginning that what I find comforting in all of this is that it's a struggle, and Jesus meets us where we're at. We're in good company. So when I struggle to learn what it really means to pray, I look for people that do it a lot better than I do. And that's the beauty and power of the Scriptures. They are filled with prayers that give us guidance. So I want you just to look at this prayer for a second that Paul prays in Colossians. For us and for one another. Let's just listen to this. Since the day that we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Listen to the persistence there. Asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. We pray that you may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Listen to this. And being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in this inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son He loves. That is a big prayer. Amen? Now, I'm sorry for choking up, but, well, I'm really not. But here's the thing. If you were to ask me, Mark, how can I pray for you? I would tell you some things. I would tell you, you know, this is, I'm back in for scans this month. It's the six-month timeline. I've got to go to get scans and back to City of Hope in August. I'd tell you about some of the struggles with work-life balance. I'd tell you about, you know, finances at home with broken air conditioners. I could, I'm going to tell you that list. I'm going to tell you my ongoing struggle just to learn to be a better dad and a better husband. I'm going to tell you those things. And I would appreciate your prayers for them. But you know what? You want to pray this prayer over me? Go for it. And I, we need to be praying this kind of prayer over each other. Big prayers. Prayers that would be the outpouring of what God wants to do in our life. That's what it really means to intercede, right? Praying for one another. I don't understand it, but the mystery of the way God has wired this is God 
uses our prayers to accomplish his divine purpose. And we heard about it this morning with Quincy, right? While we have prayed for a specific need, God has also unleashed great endurance and patience, wisdom, and joy amid <laughs> crazy stuff. That's the way God works. So we're called to pray big prayers over each other. That's what intercession is like. And we join the intercessor. So join him in that. And then our exhortation, the front part of this. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay, so confess your sins one to another. Got that? Any questions? Move on? I was about to say, let's move into the group part of the activity, gather in groups of three. That we're called to do it now. People who are a lot smarter than I am when I read up on this, all right, there's a number of different perspectives on exactly what this passage means. Some say it's about confessing sins that have occurred in the body of Christ one to another, um, things that we need to ask for forgiveness for, and we're going to get to that next week. We talk about what does it mean to forgive one another. But the other, the other point here is that it's really just about how God uses grace within the body of Christ for his own uh, for, for, for grace and healing to take place, to be unleashed in the body. And I just want to talk about that. How does it work? Well, there's no question but what the epicenter of sin is individual. It's in our own hearts. It begins and ends here. It's the evil twin that lies within, right? That's the battleground. And so confession always starts with our personal confession. Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but you know we don't even like to say the word sin. It conjures up all those images of hellfire and brimstone preachers. Well, in part, you've got to be careful because it runs the risk of actually falling into denial that it exists. Or maybe, maybe it starts to become almost like a cavalier attitude. Well, there's a lot worse things that people have done, and I'm, I'm doing okay, right? And we fail to kind of see God's view of it. A cavalier attitude. It's, thinking about this, anyone know the comedian Steve Martin? Am I dating myself? He actually used to do stand-up stuff. Anyway, he used to have a thing at the end of his routine where he would share kind of these humorous proverbs to kind of send the audience out. I'll never forget one of them. He says, okay, um, last proverb is, my, my, my word of wisdom is, always carry a litter bag in your car. Because it doesn't take up much space, and when it gets full, you can always just toss it out the window. I almost took that out. Probably should have. But that's how we treat sin, right? A lot of times, oh yeah, okay, oh, move on, oh, move on. And so it's important to acknowledge it and then ask for God's help in searching our hearts about it. That's why in Psalm 19 it says, who can discern his errors? Oh Lord, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins, those sins that have really taken root in my life, those sins that I have cherished, right? that I might be pure and blameless before you. It's a strong word. Cherished sin. It actually shows up in Psalm 66. It says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Word to think about that. I'm guilty of that. You can't confess your sin and cherish it at the same time. Lord, forgive me for this thing that I've done, that I really like doing, and that I probably plan on doing again. Doesn't work that way. He calls us to put this to death, to loathe it, 
Alistair Begg says, the hypocrite leaves his sin and still loves it. The humble leaves his sin and loathes it because he sees the perspective that God has about it. And God help us. This is a struggle we cannot go alone. And the Apostle Paul spoke about this. Listen to these words from Romans 7. If this doesn't resonate with who you are, who I am, it says, I know that nothing good lives in me. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I see this at work in my life. What a mess of a man I am. Who will rescue me from my life dominated by sin and death? That's the Apostle Paul. That's bad news, because we're all there. But it's followed by good news. What happens in Romans 8? But there is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from the consequences of our sin. We're free from the consequences, but not the struggle. We no longer struggle with sin in order to become children of God. Rather, we are children of God who now must struggle to be sanctified. We're justified. It doesn't change. Nothing can separate us from our status. But our sanctification process of becoming more who he's designed us to be involves confession and healing and repentance and the pursuit of God's holiness. And that's where the community comes in. <coughs> so, some, of, excuse me, some of the most agonizing and personal prayers of David in the Psalms Psalms of repentance are corporate prayers. The reality is, sin is my problem, sin is your problem, sin is our problem. And the danger when we limit our time of, of thought about this and repentance is that we begin to isolate yourself. I used to do this. I used to think that my sin was my problem, I repent, etc., and that's it. But what gets missed in that is the fact that the body of Christ can be used to heal and restore us. In fact, Sin flourishes in isolation. And people in recovery programs know this. They know, hey, I can't go it alone. I need the help of the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit. I can't conquer this on my own. And that's where the body of Christ comes in. So we're called to confess our sin one to another. Now I'll just share some attributes about this and, and a warning label. And we'll begin to wrap up. First, the warning label. What I do not believe that this means is that we are to be completely indiscriminate about what we say and who we say it to in terms of our sin. I, I do not believe that this means that every thought we have gets confessed. No, in fact, quite the opposite. I would say that when it comes to the more intimate moments of confession and desire to create relationships of accountability, that that is reserved for the most trusted, tested, true, and mature relationships that we cultivate in the body of Christ. Because when we share the sins that we struggle with, there has to be an absolute firewall of confidentiality and trust for it to work. This is even described in Galatians. Paul talks about this in Galatians 6. He, he talks about if someone is caught in a sin to restore them gently, and then he says, but watch out lest you be tempted. He gives a warning, restore them, but be really, really careful. A couple of reasons. One, you may find yourself tempted by the very sin you're talking about. You may actually become enabling rather than encouraging. But the second thing is, think about it. As we listen, we have a sin nature. We are prone to gossip. We're prone to violate confidentiality. We have to, we're prone to somehow be prideful. Oh, that would never happen to me. And if we fail to abide by those principles of humility 
authenticity, then what happens, instead of bringing holiness into the body and healing, it wreaks havoc. Therefore, it's important to really be mindful of what goes into those relationships that we cultivate. So there's no like five easy steps to you know, corporate confession or you know, confession for dummies or all those kinds of things. I, I just share a couple of principles here. The first one is in our relationships one with another, as we, as we incrementally increase our vulnerability and our accountability, a couple things. One, it always begins with humility. What's that old country song? There but by the grace of God go I, but the old country song is the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. It's always level at the foot of the cross, and ultimately we're trying to be agents of the grace of Jesus Christ. We do not have a Savior who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way. And so we come before him in humility. The other aspect of humility is our authenticity. And I would suggest to you, and having been involved in some discussions like this on both sides of, of, of the dynamic here, I would say, you know, I'll be honest with you, when I've listened or, or been involved with friends who've been involved in confessing certain sins and being trying to be helpful, I used to actually think I was kind of constitutionally above certain sins. You ever think that way? Whether you read things in the paper or you hear things, you think, oh man, I could never do that. I could never, that would never happen to me. And I would suggest that maybe there's some understanding or truth in that, but the reality is, if that hasn't happened to you, something else has. We've all sinned. And we have to remember, we're all sinners, we have to remember that. I mean, for example, I, I used to think, I mean, I've investigated child abuse cases, okay, for the bulk of my career. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at, I've seen some stuff, said I could never do that. I could never do that. I don't get that. And then we had four kids under six years old. I, I'm serious. <laughs> and thank God for grace and parenting, all right? You know what I mean? And that's the kind of humility that God has. And when we come before his throne of grace, remember, we're not confessing anything to God that he doesn't already know. He knows. But what he basically says is, and we say, well, God, you know, so if you already know, why do I have to confess it? Because basically what Jesus says is, well, until you know that I know, then it will always be a wedge between us. But if you confess, then it can be an, a moment of grace and healing. And healing is released in the community. And that is where it rests. That all gets wrapped up in grace. That whenever we are involved in confession and prayer with one another, that we remember that our relationships are not defined by our sin. Not your sin that defines you, your habitual failings. Okay, you're also not defined by your resume, your portfolio, the good things in your life. You and I, in the body of Christ, goes all the way back to the beginning. Right? being saved and then joined together in the body of Christ. You and I are saved by one thing and defined by one thing only, and that's the grace and mercy of God in Christ. That is our unity. And that is our love. So as we go to prayer, I was trying to figure out how to end this. Because like I said, it's not sort of a step or script for this kind of thing, but I just want to leave you with this image as to how we are to sort of engage in our relationships one with another when it comes to prayer and confession. And it's one, he doesn't mind my sharing this, I kind of got his permission. Kyle and I got together earlier this week and we were just sort of comparing notes on life, right? And, and um, you know, the challenges we face, the, the, the directions we're trying to seek God's will on, you know, what does it mean to sort of understand and discern what God has next for us? He's in his mid-20s, I'm in my mid-60s. He's lived one quarter of his life, he's got three quarters left. I've lived three quarters. 
I got one quarter left. You know what? The issues are no different, really. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. But thinking about this, you know, what does it really mean to be in the center of God's will? And when's the last time I experienced that? And this is the, the moment I'd like to just share with you. When I think about being exactly where God wants me to be, it's right here. I don't mean preaching, but it's right here as an example last Sunday, serving communion. Think about it. What it means to hold the elements and to feel and know I've been forgiven and to be able to hold that out for someone else. That is the picture of confession in the body of Christ. And sometimes, I mean, number one, I get emotional, but my good Lutheran upbringing, I'm always trying to say, this is the body of Christ broken for you, shed for the, you know, and the blood of Christ shed for the mission of sins, you know, taken. So I, I try and get that out. Either I'm too emotional, y'all move too fast, right? You're sort of worried about the people behind you. I can never get the words out. So last week I just said, hey, Mark, take this. It's for sinners like you and me. So let that inform where God wants to take you in our life together, in your relationships, in your own heart, whatever needs to be confessed. And as Kyle comes back up, we'll, we'll, we'll end with silence here as we began with this. So would you just be silent for a moment? And, and like I said, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What is he bringing to your attention? And rest with it. Ask him why, what it's about. And then we'll worship.